<laughs> All right. Well, hey, everybody. I'm Alex. I'm an alcoholic. I'm really excited to be here today. I am nervous in the interest of full disclosure. I will say that. Um, you know, but I, I mentioned that outside before we came in here, and uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, you're among friends here. And it really made me think because it's, you know, it's amazing to me today that I can go virtually anywhere in the world and walk into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and truly feel, truly feel today like I'm amongst friends. Um, the sensation I feel when I, when I travel um, is that when I go to a meeting, I feel like I've found my tribe. And um, I spent so many years of my life looking for my people, you know, and, and sort of trying to fit in in different places, and it never quite fit. There was just something. I was just a little off. And when I came into this program and started down the path of recovery, I felt like I found my tribe. And for that, I'm truly grateful. And so I think it's um, appropriate to be here at a gratitude weekend. Um, to start, my sobriety date is April 24, 2006. I have a sponsor. I sponsor other women. I have a home group, which is the East Atlanta group uh, at Martha Brown United Methodist Church off of Moreland Avenue in Atlanta. If you're in town, come and see us. Um, and I, I like starting stories with that. I'd heard that that was the way to start, and I think it's important for me to sort of put out there where I am as an alcoholic and sort of establish my seat. So, um, like I said, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here today. I'm really excited. I do still get nervous. Um, and it's funny because I actually just flew in last night. I've been on a work trip for 10, 11 days, um, starting in Paris, France, then going to Bordeaux, France, where I was the tour guide for a group of people attending a wine festival. <laughs> Which I thought I really wanted to make sure I shared with you guys because it's just so dang funny. Um, you know, and when I was telling Jamie when he asked me to come and speak, um, I, I said, you know, well, the funny thing is I'll be just coming back from leading a group of people to a wine festival, and then after leaving the wine festival, I spent four days in Las Vegas. So I went from wine festival, Sin City, home, and thank God, at a meeting. <laughs> um, you know, and at first when I was asked, I was a little hesitant because I just arrived at 9 o'clock last night. I've been on the road for 10 days. I'm tired. You know, all those usual sort of human excuses that we can come up for uh, when we don't want to do things or when we want to sort of claim ourselves. Um, but my sponsor pointed out to me that, first of all, um, as a sober person, it's kind of my job to say yes to service unless I literally cannot be there, um, which means, you know, I've had lots of challenging moments in my sobriety where I've had to show up for stuff even when I was tired or even when there were things I could have been doing somewhere else, um, but it's always been exactly where I needed to be, which is exactly how I feel right now. And the other side of that is she suggested that it was probably helpful for me to be thinking about the fact that I was coming home to tell my story while I was off at a wine festival in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, and I agree with her wholeheartedly um, because one of the things that's happened to me today is that recovery has become the calming point in my life. Um, so much of my early life was chaos, um, and even today I still have the sort of tendency to create chaos around me. Um, I call it stirring the pot, and I like to do that a lot. And so holding on to recovery with both hands and holding on to this program is typically the calming factor in my life, and I can use all the calm I can get um, because my head likes to make things really crazy. Um, luckily, this program is really simple, so I can kind of choose, if I choose, uh, to let go of the crazy and sort of grasp onto some simple. So um, we'll start at the beginning. I was born February 12, 1983. I was born in Dallas, Texas, but uh, very shortly thereafter, we moved to New Jersey, um, which is where I lived until I was eight years old. Um, I come from a very loving very supportive family. Um, there is no history of alcoholism in my family. I'm the special one. Um, <clears throat> I like to joke with my family members that I lowered the bar so that if we do have addiction in the family or, or alcoholism in the future, I've already paved that road, so we'll know a little bit better how to handle it. Um, I am an only child, and I think through the years of, of growing up and then being sober and kind of looking back on my life and in the course of doing inventories, I, I kind of realized I do think being an only child was significant in my story um, because for me what that meant was I had infinite, boundless love at home. I mean, I, I am very loved 
which is a huge blessing, you know. And not only am I an only child, but on both sides of the family, I'm the only granddaughter, and then on my father's side, the only grandchild at all. And so there was like three generations of love beaming down on me, which um, is a blessing. I'm really blessed to come from a supportive family. Sometimes it felt suffocating um, to have all that attention, um, but I was an attention hog. And I learned that really early on that, you know, at home, I was the star. I was the star of pretty much anything I did because I was the only kid. Um, you know, my parents had met and married later in life. And so, and they had had to try very hard to have a child and, you know, had some um, difficulty getting pregnant. And so it was like I was this, like, wonder baby, which, you know, with my alcoholic ego, it's like, don't tell me things like that because I will just run with it. Um, but I was, I was surrounded by love and had, you know, what I look back on as a normal, happy childhood, especially at home. I mean, you know, things were functional. It was, you know, and luckily today I am still able to have an incredible relationship with my parents, um, which again is a blessing. But one of the things that I think started happening early on was there was this sort of disparity between all that love and attention I got at home and then how I felt when I was out with friends at school or socializing, you know, I don't think, I don't think looking back on it now that there was any way I could have been satisfied with the attention and love I got out in the world because it was nothing compared to all that attention I got at home. And so from the very beginning, there was sort of this disconnect between how I felt about how I was perceived outside in the world versus how my family and loved ones perceived me. Um, you know, and I, I tell people today, when I look back on my life, I believe I had the emotional traits of an alcoholic long before I had ever taken a drink. Um, I look back on the feeling not part of, feeling just a little bit different, the sort of difficulty in navigating the world around me sometimes socially and just just, just a little bit off. And, and I look back at some of the ways I behaved and the sort of taking things personally. That's one of my favorite uh, character defects is taking things personally. Um, you know, and it's because like, it's all about me. Um, and started doing that at a very young age. Um, when I was eight years old, we moved here to Georgia. I grew up in Smyrna. Um, and it marked a pretty significant time in my life because when we lived in New Jersey, we lived in a suburb of New York City. It was very sort of, you know, suburban, but, you know, people who worked in New York City worked in the opera, worked in the theater. It was very multicultural. It was very diverse. Um, and when we moved to Georgia, it was much less that way. Um, <laughs> moving to Smyrna, Georgia in 1991, we were one of the first, you know, in that new boom of everything that got built in the Smyrna area, we were one of the, one of the first subdivisions. And I started going to a private school, which I had not done when we lived in New Jersey. And again, um, you know, these were people who I think had known each other in utero. Like, I think they came out of the womb being best friends. Um, and because, you know, they all... They lived in the Buckhead area. They all went to the same church, went to the same country club. Their moms were probably sorority sisters. I don't even know. Um, but even at the age of eight years old, when I moved down here, there was a very, I could feel the fact that I was not one of them. Um, and, you know, there were times when I was made known that I was not one of them. And it really was so difficult for me, again, because I felt like such a star at home. And then when I would go to school or, or be out with those people, I wasn't accepted much socially. I mean, you're eight. How big of a deal is it really? But it still it created this feeling, this little seed of feeling not part of. Um, and as I grew, my response to that was, fine. If I'm not part of you, I'm going to be as much not part of you as I can possibly be, um, which, you know, it took multiple forms. I did a lot of different phases through, like, early teenage, junior high, and high school years. You know, I did the skater phase, did the punk phase, the hippie phase all in an attempt to be like, fine, if you don't, if I can't be one of you, then I'm just going to say screw you and I'm going to be as different as I can possibly be. And I really wore it like a badge, which I think might also be tied into my budding emotional alcoholism, um, needing to really, it's like, well, if, if, if I can't be accepted, then I'm going to be as in your face as I possibly can. And I was pretty good at that. Um, I'm pretty good at being in your face. Um, I honestly can't say when my first drink was. I remember taking sips of my father's beer as a child, not really liking it, but it's one of those things as a kid, you're like, oh, I'm take a sip of beer. I don't remember particularly having a feeling one way or the other about it. It wasn't something, you know, it wasn't like that first sip flipped the switch. Um, 
I do remember the first time that I drank with the intention of getting drunk. Um, and that was the weekend before my freshman year of high school. And one of my best buddies from school had an older boyfriend. And he had gone to Europe for the summer. And so, you know, being that he could buy alcohol in Europe, brought some back. And so she had it hidden inside her teddy bear. And it was, you know, probably like an airplane vodka bottle inside a teddy bear at her parents' house. But we decided, we're starting high school next week. We need to get drunk. I don't even know why in my head it felt like that was a rite of passage that I was supposed to take. But so we set out with the intention of trying alcohol with the intention to get intoxicated. I don't even know. I mean, I think we probably mixed this airplane bottle of vodka with like Sprite or whatever we could find. I remember taking a few drinks and not necessarily feeling anything. I mean, we probably put like a splash. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, that changed. Uh, but I remember not being drunk, but wanting to pretend that I was drunk. Um, you know, because that was the goal. We were there to try to get drunk. And, to, you know, to be honest, I don't know if she got drunk either. I mean, probably not. But I remember spinning around the room and laughing and falling down, playing drunk, because that's what I was supposed to be at that moment. Um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, my high school career, I was actually pretty tame. Um, I think some of that was the sort of fear of God. The, high, the private school I went to was very rigid about the rules. Um, and so I think I had enough fear about getting caught and getting kicked out that I kind of I kind of towed the party line. I mean, you know, we would find, again, older boys to buy us booze. And my parents' house, you know, we have a house where my bedroom is on the a absolute opposite side of the house from there. So I had the perfect setup because I had a really big room and it had its own set of stairs down to the kitchen. So I would invite two or three girlfriends over. We'd get silly on whatever booze we could get our hands on and prank call boys. I mean, it was pretty innocuous. Um, pretty tame stuff. And, you know, the, the people around me were not heavy drinkers or heavy partiers. I mean, it, I look back on that, and I don't, I don't think that that was – I don't think the alcoholic behavior had started at that point. Like, it, well, I wasn't a pickle yet. I was still in cucumber territory. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it was pretty run-of-the-mill high school stuff, smoking a little pot here and there, you know, but nothing, I think I was just scared enough, but one of the first things I did start doing was smoking cigarettes, and that was my little act of defiance, you know, hang out at the coffee shop after school, again, with older boys, um, and smoke cigarettes, uh, but it was pretty, pretty reasonable, nothing, nothing got out of hand at that time. My life was still really manageable. Um, I graduated from high school, and as a part of my sort of establishing um, how different I am from you guys, since you don't accept me, I'm going to do something way different, I, you know, decided the South is the problem. It's this damn city. So what I'm going to do is go to college in New Jersey at a liberal arts college, which is really different, because that was my thing. I wanted to be different and special. Um, so I went away to college in New Jersey, and that, I think, is sort of when things started turning the corner a little bit, um, because I finally found a way and a place where I felt special that matched the specialness I had been sort of raised around, and that was amazing for me. Um, the part in Bill W's story where he talks about, I had arrived, when I moved to New Jersey to go to college, that was my moment of I had arrived. I remember one of the first nights living in the dorms there, the rugby team was having a big party. Uh, it was a small school, so there were no fraternities or sororities, so the rugby team was sort of the default frat. I mean, and we're talking Animal House style, filthy rooms, just big lugs drinking beer. But they had a party, and I remember drinking at the party. I don't, I don't think I necessarily got drunk, but my roommate had done something. I think she, oh, she had outdrank the captain of the rugby team, which is a pretty significant feat. Um, and he was sort of ranting and raving about it, and everybody was looking. And I don't even remember what it is I said, but I said something sort of sassy to him. And he turned around and he goes, who are you? I like you. <sighs> awesome. Thank you for noticing me. And so because I was in a small school in New Jersey and there were not many people from the South, um, I sort of, my way of establishing myself as different there was I was the sassy Southern girl. Um, and I really worked that angle. I, uh, 
it was it became a funny thing anytime I was on the phone with my family. Um, my accent, I like to think I have a fairly neutral accent, but it shifts depending on who I'm with. Um, I guess I'm just a chameleon that way. And so when I'd be on the phone with my family, who is from the South, um, I'd go sort of native in my accent, and so everybody in the dorms thought it was the funniest thing when I was going to call home and call the family. They'd all sit around in my room to listen to my Southern accent. Um, and I loved it. I totally drank it in because, again, it was a moment to feel special. Well, I continued going to school in New Jersey. I was there for two years, and um, during that time, I started experimenting uh, more with drugs, drinking a lot more. It was a small campus. Everybody lived on campus. Most people didn't have cars. In a small town in northern New Jersey, you drank. There was not, unless you were taking the train into New York City, you were just going to hang out on the weekends and get really drunk. Um, and that's what I did. And I was really good at that. Um, the problem was getting up and going to class the next day, fulfilling the requirements of the courses, basically being a present person. That was, that was where it started getting a little difficult. Um, I do talk about drugs a little bit. I am an alcoholic. Drugs are also part of my story. So um, I like to say that up front because I think it's all the same disease for me and it, it, the solution to it is the same too. So um, things started getting a little more unmanageable. Um, I did get caught smoking pot in my dorm, but because it was a private college and these were like campus security cops, not cop cops, um, I got a slap on the wrist and I had to do community service. And that was it. So there weren't any like really big consequences yet to the fact that I was slowly losing my ability to party and then show up for things the next day. And partially because of that, um, my grades slipped. It is, I, I found I had very limited success being an alcoholic in college. Um, I could either kind of be one or the other. I couldn't really be in college and be an alcoholic. It didn't, didn't go very well. And because of that, my grades started slipping and I lost my scholarship. Now, I didn't have a full ride to this school, but I had a decent-sized merit-based scholarship, and um, college is expensive. <laughs> college is crazy expensive. And after I lost my scholarship, my parents were like, okay, well, I guess you're coming home then, because there was just no way that they were going to be able to. I mean, I'm blessed that they were able to support me as much as they were, but it was kind of crazy for me to stay up there, especially when I wasn't even doing well in school anymore. So it's like... Why are we going to pay for you to go to this really nice college when you're just drinking? Um, and I don't think at the time they really knew that that's what the deal was. Um, you know, there were sort of these, like, what's up with Alex? And I don't think anybody really knew, and it didn't help that I was never really honest about what I was doing. Um, you know, and throughout the years, even as a child, I had had periods of time where I had been in therapy. Again, part of that sort of inability to fit in in the world around me led to some lashing out and... Um, you know, nothing major, but in and out of therapy for many years. And when I did get caught in my dorms, I did have to also go to therapy and found a really awesome therapist up there that I liked. But things were just starting to really fall apart. Um, the last semester that I was in school in New Jersey, um, I had also, a lot of things were sort of falling apart at once. I knew I'd lost my scholarship to the school. Uh, my grandmother was dying of lung cancer, and also I had had some health stuff going on that was related to my lifestyle choices at the time um, that was pretty devastating to me. And I think there was this moment where I truly felt like, okay, I'm officially a screw-up now. Because all the things that had happened in my life I still felt like there was some sort of redemption left, like, you know, you really haven't totally screwed the pooch, it's okay. Um, but there was this really tangible moment. I was home for Christmas holidays, and I got the news about my grandmother, about my health, and about my grades all in the day. And I remember just crumpling on my parents' couch, just sobbing. And my poor parents, I can't imagine now... Um, what it was like for them, you know, over the years of me being sober, they've given me some opportunity to tell me a little bit about what it was like for them. And I'm grateful for that, you know, and, and the cool part is they are very active in Families Anonymous today, and so they do have their own recovery. Um, but I can't imagine what it was like for them seeing this weeping child on the couch and, and them just not, I wasn't letting them know about my life enough, so how could they know how to help if I wasn't telling them what was wrong? You know, but just having this inconsolable child. I'm still, I mean, I'm, you know, 19 years old. I'm still a child. So I think in my head I had this very, very clear idea that I had gone past the point of redemption, that the mistakes I had made, and particularly coming 
from, and I mean, I remember thinking in these exact terms, the, the high school that I went to, and I carried the baggage from high school for a really long time. I had my 10-year reunion this year, and it was so cathartic because I realized that so much of, like, that baggage that I was carrying was just me. It was my perception as an alcoholic, as a budding alcoholic, you know, my perception of the world around me that was probably a little skewed, which is not to say high school is tough for everybody, but my high school was very sort of competitive, you know, old money Atlanta people, and they all went to good schools, they were in fraternities and sororities, they graduated in four years and got jobs and, you know, bought nice homes in Buckhead, and, you know, when I realized that my life was taking a drastically different path, um, that was when I really felt like a screw-up, and that's something that I struggled with throughout all my years of life is the comparison, Um, you know, and I had my first sponsor always told me to quit comparing my insides to other people's outsides, you know, Um, and I'm still guilty of that today. I'll own that. I can say that, but um, it has a little less of a hold on me, and I realize a little bit more when I'm doing it, but that's what I was doing at that time was really comparing the, the path of my life and how it felt like it was really starting to stink. Um, and then, like, looking on, well, I guess we didn't have Facebook at the time. We had Friendster. And um, looking to see how successful everybody was and they're getting engaged. You know, just everything's going well for them, and that's like, okay, well, I'm officially a screw-up. So I sort of moved back to Atlanta with my tail between my legs, um, transferred to Georgia State University, and went and got my first apartment because I wasn't going to live on the dorms at that point. I had my two years of dorm life, and that was perfectly sufficient. Um, And I moved to Atlanta, and I think moving to a city that, well, I think we probably all know there's some good partying to do here, um, combined with the feeling that I didn't like myself very much at the time, really opened the door for me, and the decline started happening really fast after that. Um, You know, I got myself into an abusive relationship right quick, um, because that seemed like the next right thing to do at the time, because he might have been emotionally abusive and an absolute jerk, but at least he loved me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And my again, my poor parents, seeing me bring this boy around, must have broken their hearts, because it was pretty clear that he was scuzzy. Um, but I, sorry, I'm sure he's a child of God like all of us. Um, <laughs> but it just, it was like I needed for the outside circumstances of my life to match how rotten I felt inside. And so I started living in a way that reflected how rotten I felt. Um, you know, started heavily experimenting with drugs in the crappy relationship, um, you know, partying all the time. And my first year in Georgia was when I turned 21. So it was like, forget it. I mean, now I can legally do this. I don't have to be even remotely as crafty as I was before. I mean, it it got pretty out of hand. I was still in school, and I was still working, you know, part-time jobs here and there. But pretty much the rest of it was getting really, really unmanageable. And then the sort of double kicker was when the relationship with the child of God, ended. Um, (laughs) When that ended, um, by him moving out of our apartment a week before Thanksgiving after throwing um, his suitcase down the stairs at my head, um, I felt totally broken. I felt really broken. And as luck would have it, um, a group of friends that were sort of not my intimate buddies, but friends of friends that had all been living in like Asheville and New Orleans, well, they all moved back to Atlanta at the same time. And they had a voracious appetite for drinking and doing cocaine. And it was the perfect timing because here I was feeling like this absolutely broken person, like I had no power, like I had nothing. And drugs and alcohol became my liquid courage. I remember the first night going out partying with them, feeling like, hell yes. Um, Feeling like this, I got my stride back. You know, and that was what the drugs and alcohol started doing for me at that point, was all that brokenness I felt inside when I was messed up out at the club, hanging out with the bands backstage, because that made me feel really cool. Um, I felt like I got my mojo back. And I'm sure for at least a little while there on the outside, it looked like I had some mojo back, you know, and I, again, 
I think my first addiction might have been feeling special because the thing that really popped for me was feeling like an it girl, you know, like a real hipster queen out in the clubs every night. You know, the guys, the producers who were putting on the shows always called me to come hang out with the band. Now, sure, it had nothing to do with the fact that I was going to give away all my drugs, um, but I felt like an it girl, and I really worked it. I had mm, six months of being an it girl, and it started to fall apart again. I got myself into another extra special relationship um, with somebody who actually at the time was living in a treatment facility and this shows you how little I understood. <laughs> I know, right? Pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> but it shows you how little I understood about recovery because I would actually go, he was in sort of a three-quarter type situation and to this day I feel bad about it. Um, there's not much I can do about it now because it's not were threatening myself to be in touch with him, but um, I do, I regrettably have to admit that I did bring drugs to his treatment center and stay in his three-quarter way house apartment and do drugs with him and, and drink. Um, I had no idea. I mean, I was just looking for somebody to be as miserable as I was, and he on the outside was even more broken than I was because he was in treatment, and so if I could focus on that, I focus on him and focus on how messed up he was, um, then I didn't have to look at myself and say, whoa, whoa. You know, I didn't have to do it. And so I held on to that relationship with iron claws. You know, they say um, anything an alcoholic lets go of has claw marks all over it. I'm one of those. I like to really hold on. I am tenacious. And I did that in this relationship. Well, things were starting to really fall apart in my personal life and in school. I had dropped out of school for two semesters in a row. I would sign up for classes, um, but then the first day of class would come and I'd be too messed up. Um, and I wouldn't go to class the first day because I'd be like, I can't go, I'm really high and the professor's going to know I'm high or I'm going to smell like booze, the prof professor's going to know. So I wouldn't go the first day. Well, then the second day, I'd say, well, I didn't go the first day, so now it's really crappy to show up the second day, and then the third day. And then two weeks would go by, and eventually I would just give up and drop all my classes. So there were two semesters in a row of signing up for courses and dropping them all because I, it, and, and I look at it now, it's not that I thought to myself, maybe I should stop drinking and drugging before class. It was, I can't go to class if he's going to notice that I'm high and drunk. It wasn't, there was never that moment where it was like, maybe don't get drunk the night before, genius. It was, that was just not, that was not the thought process at all. So I had to drop out of school and started, you know, all these little part-time jobs, not stringent jobs, um, lost them all because I would not show up because I'd be messed up or hungover or who knows what. Um, and I started going to therapy again and for a while I was uh, therapy hopping because I had gotten one doctor to diagnose me as ADHD, which I'd gotten that diagnosis a couple times in my life. That's a whole other story. But um, the upside of that was I got myself some prescription medicine that I was supposed to take um, in the form of basically legal speed. And um, that was obviously not very helpful to the fact that I was, ring, ring, an alcoholic and an addict. Um, but the other thing is, you know, if you're not honest with your doctors and your therapists, they're not going to know what's going on. Now, luckily in my course of therapist hopping, looking for the answer I wanted, you know, like trying to figure out all the other things that were the problem, why I was in these bad relationships, why my mom and dad didn't understand what was going on with me, why I was such a victim, how hard it was to be me, you know, and that's, that was the stuff I really needed to hear. Um, I found a therapist who actually happened to be in the program. And let me just say that he saw through my stuff like, and I'm sure I wasn't doing a really good job of hiding it at that point. I mean, I was, I was a mess. I was telling somebody earlier in my last year of drinking and using, um, I gained a lot of weight. And I think it was, you know, I wouldn't eat for a few days and then I'd eat like a sack full of crystals and drink beer. Um, and it's just not really good for your metabolism. I don't know why, but um, I was really heavy and just puffy and... Uh, there was a period that winter where the gas had been turned off at our house and we were all too drunk and lazy to go down and get it turned back on. We had the money. We just couldn't pull it together. So didn't have hot, <laughs> didn't have hot water. So, you know, instead of, like, doing something about it, I just stopped showering. Um, you know, I figured a fresh coat of deodorant and some uh, toothpaste like this on my teeth. I was good to go. So I wasn't looking my finest. Um, I was pretty, pretty.
pretty ratty, pretty scuzzy. And again, I think it was an example of needing my outside to match my inside because I felt scuzzy. I felt disgusting. I was making choices with my life that brought me a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of anger, too. And so I needed to look as crappy as possible on the outside um, because it matched. So I started going to this one therapist who was in recovery, and I don't know what it is that made me want to be honest with him. Um, and I don't know what it is that helped him where all the other people hadn't see exactly right through my crap, but he did. And I'll never forget one session that I was probably hungover, if not still drunk, for, where he had me write down on a whiteboard a bottom-line estimate of how much money I had spent in the past five years on drugs and alcohol, and it was mortifying. Um, and I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't a very honest inventory of that either, and it was still a shocking number. And I mean, that, I was like, okay, yeah, that's really crazy. Huh. But it still, something still wasn't clicking, but he strongly suggested um, that I start going to AA. And, you know, I, I sort of had mixed feelings about it. I was pretty resistant. I didn't go at first. Um, but he kind of pointed out, and I mean, things, had just, things were just totally, totally falling apart. My parents finally had gotten kind of wise to what was going on. Um, I don't think they ever really knew the full extent of it until they had to come move me out of the house I was living in. I call it a house. Um, that's a loose term. By the point they saw it, it was um, a hovel. I mean, it was absolutely disgusting and I think that was when they got a real idea of exactly how bad it had gotten but they knew obviously that something was wrong I was totally withdrawn I would you know show up for Thanksgiving sneak off to the bathroom eat some food and peace out as quickly as possible because I could not stand to be around my family when I was drunk and high because I, I could feel their eyes boring through me like looking at me like what the heck is wrong with you and I couldn't stand to be under that kind of scrutiny. So I would do the perfunctory, like I'd show up for a few minutes so that I wasn't totally off the radar. Um, but I got further and further off the radar, and I remember my mom calling my roommates, crying and pleading um, for them to find me and tell me to call her because she hadn't heard from me in over a month, and she wanted to know I was alive. started going to this therapist. He recommended that I go to AA, and I actually went. I went to um, the 10 o'clock meeting at Triangle, was my first ever AA meeting, and in true fashion, I came late and left early, um, and actually, the very first time I told my story, I told this, on my way to my very first AA meeting, I'm driving on the connector, I was living in Reynoldstown at the time, so I was on the highway, and it's one of those where you come around the curve and all of a sudden traffic is at a standstill. And so I slam on my brakes, but I hit the car in front of me, not very hard. It, they had a huge truck. All it, it didn't do anything to their car. It punched a little hole in my bumper. But pulled over on the side of the road, and here I am sort of wailing and gnashing of teeth, like, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to go to my first meeting. What the crap is this? I can't believe I hit a car. And, and like I said a few minutes ago, I gained a whole lot of weight in my last year of drinking and using. And because I was an addict and an alcoholic. I also didn't like buy myself new clothes, so I had really poor fitting clothes and no showering and you get the picture. So I was really heavy and we pull over on the side of the highway to inspect the damage in the car and the woman that I hit gets out of her car and she goes, oh my god, you're pregnant. We need to call an ambulance. <laughs> because I was so heavy, she thought I was pregnant. So I, it's a miracle I even went to the meeting that night because that would be the kind of thing that would have made me feel totally justified and getting totally wasted. Like, I'm so big because I'm so pregnant and I had a card. I'm uh, But for some reason I went, came there late, left early, but somebody snagged me outside and took my vibrating self to the Majestic Diner and listened to me rant and ramble for like three straight hours. And it's a total miracle that she did because I'm sure I was not pleasant to be around at the time. I did end up picking up a white chip um, and had a copy of the big book. Apparently my uncle had dabbled in the program. I don't know that I think he was necessarily an alcoholic. He was a um, paranoid schizophrenic. And for many years before mental health care was um, where it is today, they would sort of just push you to AA do something with that. So he had a copy of the big book that was in his um, you know, estate when he passed on. So I had a copy of the big book, picked up a white chip, and, and this girl who had approached me after the first meeting, I, you know, my therapist had said, okay, here's what you do. You go to the meeting, you pick up a white chip, you get a temporary sponsor, you call them, and you know, he gave me this sort of set of instructions. And I did it for like two days. Um, 
But, you know, it was a remarkable show of willingness on my part. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just, for whatever reason, I wasn't there yet. You know, um, at that point, my parents had cut me off financially. Smart move on their part. Probably should have done it months before. But they gave me the option. You can move home. You will have, like, a curfew, and you will you know, have to do things around the house, but we're certainly not giving you any more money to live downtown and do nothing, so would you like to move home? Um, and given that I didn't really have another option, I did. But then the new game I would start to play is I would be home for a couple of days, be the good daughter, eat dinner with them, and then get that itch, you know, that itch. And I would go downtown on the pretense of needing to pack up some more things from my house. Um, but, of course, to do that, I needed some gas money because I had no gas in my car, and I probably needed money for cigarettes, too, because I was running out. So I would scam my poor parents into giving me money so I could go drive downtown and disappear on them for a few days and get drunk. Um, I remember one of the last times I did that, thinking, truly believing in my head, all I want to do is go out and have one beer with my friends. That's really how I intended the night to start. And that was when I think I started realizing that it was getting kind of free, that my actual intention, because there were so many other nights where I said, I'm not going to do much tonight, knowing in my head that I was going to get totally wasted. Um, but I had actually started trying to moderate and was still not able to. That last time out, the last time running away from my parents, um, started with, I'm literally just going to go have a beer with friends at our neighborhood bar. Five days later, I have been shacked up in a hotel room for three days, couch surfing. I've turned my phone off so my parents will stop calling. I'm borrowing people's clothing because I don't want to go back to my house because I have a feeling I know my parents will be there. And all of that started from wanting beer up to have one beer. So after that last escapade, something in my spirit was just totally broken. Um, I don't know what it was, but I think that last sort of hurrah really scared me because I went to some really dark places, both physically and spiritually. And I go to my, my house knowing that my parents are going to be there. We drive back up to Smyrna, and my mom says, do you want to go get a free assessment at Ridgeview? I have absolutely no idea what changed in all those months and years of defiance, of not wanting to be honest about what was going on with me, I have no idea what was different in that moment. I think I was just broken enough, you know, and feeling just scuzzy enough that when she said it at that moment, I had absolutely no fight left. And I said, okay, I'll go do a free assessment at Ridgeview. It's probably also to kind of quiet her because she and I were both very strong personalities. Um, and so we have very spirited discussions. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing how far that's come today. I consider my mom my best friend today. I talk to her almost every day. Um, so I go do the assessment at Ridgeview, and somehow it was assessed that I was an alcoholic and an addict and probably needed some treatment. <laughs> um, so I was all set. That was on a Friday. And that Monday morning was when I was going to start outpatient treatment. We don't really understand how I went through that radar as only needing outpatient treatment. So my response to celebrate the fact that I'm going to start rehab on a Monday was to go out and get really drunk. Um, so my very last drink and drug was the weekend before I started rehab. Um, and I don't think in my head that I necessarily had an idea that it was going to be my last drink and drug. I knew that things were about to change when I went to Ridgeview. Um, and I mean, it's just like, that's so twisted. That's so alcoholic. To like, okay, I'm going to rehab on Monday. Better get it in really fast. Um, but my last drink and drug was really, was not, it was not a good night and it was not a bad night. It was anticlimactic and pitiful, really. Um, you know, I had conned, I was out to dinner with an old friend, conned her into buying us a bottle of wine for the dinner table, and then conned her into going to my favorite bar because I wanted to show her where the good bars were in town because she'd just moved back. And then conned her into going away so that I could go party and drink and do drugs with my other friends. You know, I show up the next morning at my parents' house, bedraggled, it's Easter Sunday, and I'm supposed to be at church. Um, I didn't go to church that Sunday. And so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But when I went to check in to my outpatient rehab on Monday morning, maybe it, I mean, I don't know, it could have something to do with the fact that I'd gotten high and drunk that weekend. They took one look at me and they were like, oh, no, no, 
no, you don't need outpatient. You need inpatient. Call your parents and tell them to pack a bag. And again, I don't know why my like fight or flight response did not kick in because usually I would make a scene. I, did, I was broken. And thank God. Thank God that I was broken because I did not have any fight left. I said, okay, fine. Fine. And luckily, my parents live literally behind Ridgeview. If any of you are familiar with Ridgeview, you can see my parents' neighborhood from the nature trail. <laughs> uh, I guess we always knew I was going to end up there someday. Um, I mean, I remember as a child. <laughs> I remember as a child driving by Ridgeview being like, that's where the crazy people go. And so it really came full circle when I went to Ridgeview. Um, <laughs> Yay. So my parents packed a bag. I did um, 30 days in the halfway house at Ridgeview in the Young Adult Addiction Program. And um, like I said, I think I was broken enough when I got there. Um, you know, a lot of the young adults, and I'm still pretty active in the Ridgeview community, um, somewhat active. I go, Saturday mornings, there's a group of us that do a meeting for the young adult inpatients. Um, and it's become a really important part of my sobriety because I don't ever want to forget how raw I felt when I walked into that facility. And I was raw. Um, I must have, like, exuded screw you out of my pores. I mean, I just, I don't know what my deal was. Um, so I did 30 days in a halfway house at Ridgeview. Um, and it's funny because, again, something broke my spirit, thank you, God, because I, do, I would, did not have any fight left when I got there. You know, a lot of the young adults go through, and it's um, very hard for us as young people. You know, I was 23 when I went in. A lot of people have a hard time with the rules, particularly with the gender rules, which I'm not saying I did not have my own problems with that. But, you know, I think... I think I was so grateful to be out of the total mountain of crap that my life had become. Because when I started at Ridgeview, literally the thought in my head was not that I'm going to get sober forever, I'm never going to drink again, I'm going to toe the line and do this program like they told me to. It was literally, if this can count as a 30-day vacation from my own life, sign me up. The beds were comfortable, the food was good, the air conditioning worked. That was all better than what I had going on in my life at the time. And that was really all I came in expecting, was just get out of my own life for 30 days. Something happened while I was there that I, and I, I can't explain it, you know, because I was not always a follow-through person or a joiner or anything like that, but I started taking suggestions. And I think part of what happened is I felt really good, you know, eating square meals, um, engaging in a community, even, even if, you know, I didn't always get along with the community, I was still part of it. Um, I found a sponsor very early on. My first home group was actually the CA meeting at Ridgeview on Monday nights. Um, you know, got a sponsor early on. It was suggested that I go to um, three-quarter way house, so I ended up living in a three-quarter way house for six months, which was the suggested amount of time. And it was crazy because all of a sudden I turned from this person who was just this, like, sloppy, slovenly, not follow through on anything to, like, Susie Sunshine toe the line. I don't know how that happened. And there were times where I'm sure I was probably really annoying about it um, because all of a sudden, like, I turned into a rule follower. Um, and not only was I a rule follower, but I wanted everybody else around me to follow the rules, and I was pretty vocal about that. Um, so I think, I think there were some times where I was stepping on the toes of my community, but um, I started following through. You know, I did the suggested six months at Hope Homes, and at the age of 24, moved back into my parents' house for almost a year. Um, you know, but things started changing. My head started clearing. You know, I started to feel happy again. I remember one of the first sort of spiritual moments I had while I was at Ridgeview. It was in the spring. I went into Ridgeview on April 24th, and the honeysuckle was blooming, and we were walking through the woods one day to go to lunch, and I just stopped on this bridge, and I had the overwhelming scent of honeysuckle. And it's, I mean, it's such a small little thing, but I had this sort of moment where I was intensely grateful for honeysuckle and for the fact that I could still smell honeysuckle and for the fact that I was there in the moment. I mean, it was like my first, the first moment in my sobriety where my body and my head were in the same place at the same time because I had spent so much of my life trying to make sure that the two were never connected. Um, and it was a really amazing experience. You know, I, um, 
I moved out of the three-quarter way house, and like I said, I, you know, I didn't do everything perfectly. I might have been annoyingly um, vocal about everybody else should follow the rules, but I did, you know, start uh, sneaking around with a boy who was in another three-quarter way house, you know, at the age of 23. It was really cool to be sneaky, what? Um, and, but this is the great part. I started feeling really bad about it, so I told on myself, what? What? <laughs> myself to my monitor at my three-quarter way house. So for the last 30 days of my time at the three-quarter way house, I was on gender. Um, I could only go to women's meetings. I was not allowed to talk to boys, no texting, no talking on the phone. My sponsor kind of tried to extend that for a few months beyond three-quarter because I probably needed it. <laughs> but, you know, the bottom line was I stayed sober through all of it, and I started working the steps. I started actively working the steps, and I started actively engaging in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so my first year sober, I was pretty much in the Smyrna area. I uh, was very active in the Freedom Club as well as meetings at Ridgeview. And um, I moved down to downtown Atlanta, moved back downtown um, after my first year sober. And that was a really interesting experience for me because I had a bad case of big fish, small ponds, living in Smyrna because in the treatment community, and especially in the young adult treatment community, um, you know, the, the turnover is really high. And so if you get a year, you feel like you really got something going on. And everybody, you go to the, you know, I was going to the same meetings. Everybody knew me. I felt like I'm Alex with a year sober. Um, <laughs> thank God that God always knocks down my ego <laughs> when it needs to be. So I moved downtown. Um, you know, and I always had wanted to move back downtown. I, I like being in the heart of the city. I was going back to school at Georgia State trying to finish up. And, um actually moved downtown with a girl that I had met in three-quarter way house. We had the first, um, our first year sober, we had the same sponsor. Um, that sponsor is actually not even sober anymore, but both of us are. Um, and she has become my best friend, my sister. She is the maid of honor in my wedding. Um, she is truly my sober sister. So we moved downtown, and it was really hard for me because I had to start going to meetings where nobody knew how important I was. <laughs> and, and it was almost like being a newcomer all over again. Uh, but luckily, I just kind of had to suck it up and do it. And, you know, my first sponsor had, uh, right around my, my first year sober, had decided that she was no longer, she no longer needed the program. Um, she was very active in her church, and she told us that she had had sort of a revelation that she didn't need to go to meetings anymore, that she could focus on church. And she was very upfront about it. She told us she didn't just disappear. You know, she said, I'm leaving the program. Church is all I need now. Um, I think she drank within six months. I don't, I don't know really much about where she is today. I hope things are going okay for her. But, you know, right after that first year sober, I had, you know, I had my year, and I had worked with steps. I was starting to sponsor women. And then I moved downtown. I had to get myself a new sponsor. I had to show up at meetings where nobody knew me. Um, and it was really good for my ego um, to get knocked down a little bit because I suffer from an overinflated sense of self um, always. And so that process really kept me humble. Um, the cool part is, you know, I have an amazing home group in downtown Atlanta today that I absolutely love. It's where I met the man I'm going to marry in a few months. Um, you know, I have a really, really full life today. Since I've been sober, I've been able to finally graduate college after eight years. Woohoo! <laughs> I took the scenic route. <coughs> but I was able to finish college. I was blessed um, to be able to serve on the host committee in 2009 for the International Conference of Young People in AA that was here in Atlanta. That was an absolutely amazing experience, um, and it was really crucial to my sobriety to, to learn about service and to learn about showing up and being on committees. And it's funny because I tease, tease myself today and say I'm a joiner. Today I'm a joiner. Like, I do stuff. I raise my hand. I say, yes, I'll do it. Um, and it was not how I lived most of my life before. I was not willing to participate in things. And it goes on beyond just the program today, you know. Like today I sing in a choir at a church. I'm not a member of that church. You know, that's not where my journey has taken me. It may, and I don't know. That's okay, too. Um, but I love singing, and singing was a huge part of my life as a child. And so when I had an opportunity to sing in a choir again, I joined. Even though it was weird and scary and out of my element, I joined. Um, you know, I have a job today that, while I may complain about it all the time, um, it's still a job. 
I got a job out of college, which, um, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people that finished school or, or even that didn't in the past few years, jobs have been really hard, and I got a job. Um, you know, I met a man that I'll be marrying in a few months that is in recovery. I met him at my home group, and these are all things that I did not think. When I first moved back to Atlanta from New Jersey, and I felt like such a failure, and I felt so dirty and so rotten, I did not think any of those things would ever be in the cards for me. You know, and it was such a strange sensation to be like 22, 23 years old and feel like everything was already totally screwed, that there was no hope left. And to be, I mean, I realize that now I'm not that much older. I'm 28 today, but still, I mean, coming in at the age of 23, I'm so glad. I am so glad today that I was broken so early. And that's such a strange thing to say, and people talk about that in meetings, about being grateful for being an alcoholic. I am absolutely grateful that I am an alcoholic because there is, I don't believe that there is a single way I could have gotten to the life that I have today and to the feeling of, even when I get stressed, and I do still get stressed, and I get judgmental, and I get angry, and I get, you know, self-pitying, and I, all those defects, I mean, they're still there, um, maybe to a lesser degree, maybe some days not. Um, I don't think there would have been any other solution for me but this, and I feel really blessed that I got it. You know, and, and, and with God's grace, I'll continue to have it, you know. Um, and I believe that today. I mean, that's the thing. It just gives me such a sense of hope that all those years of wandering, all those years of trying to fit in and trying to find where I belonged, this is where I belong. And I would, I'm so proud to say that, you know. Barbie's making me cry. <laughs> I'm just so proud to say that I found my people and I found a way of life that actually works for me because it does. I mean, I wouldn't have stuck around for five years if it didn't actually work. Um, it gives me the feeling like I have the tools I need to get through anything today. And I didn't have any tools when I came in here. The only tool I had was to get drunk and high. That's the only thing I knew how to do, and that didn't even do anything. All it really did was delay the inevitable. You know, it might have just sort of suspended my misery while I blissed out for a few hours. But when I woke up the next day, my life was still my life. I was still me. You know, and I couldn't get drunk enough or high enough to stop being me. Um, and it was actually, as it turns out, me that was the problem. Um, but that's a good thing because it means if I'm the problem, there's actually something I can do about it today. Um, you know, and it, it takes a lot of work, and I'm not perfect at it. You know, I, I try to stay as active as possible. Um, there are times when I don't get to enough meetings, where I don't call my sponsor enough, where I'm, you know, there are times when the phone is ringing and it's a sponsee and the absolute last thing in this whole entire world I want to do is answer the phone. And I'll be honest, sometimes I don't. But when I do, I feel better. You know, and that's, that's the part is, even though I don't do it perfectly today, I know that when I do do the things that are good and that are right and that I've been taught to do, like, the result is always good. It's just a matter of if I choose it or not. Um, so, you know, I'm just... I'm really, really grateful to be here today, and I'm really grateful to have had the chance to share my story with you. And, you know, as my sponsor told me, my only job today is to try to help one other alcoholic in this world, and if I do that, then I can say it was a good day. So thank you so much for letting me share.